0: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live Wednesday mornings, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. We're at the Wharton School Huntsman Hall, SiriusXM Business Radio Studios for the first of the twenty twenty shows. Cade massey hosting is one of my two buddies and faculty colleagues, Ollie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Delighted to be back. We've been away for three weeks now. I know you guys have done some traveling. You've done some holidaying. I suspect you've done some sports watching. Very curious to hear about all of that. We're curious to hear from our listeners as well. You guys, as usual, can jump in here. If you'd like to, we'd like you to. Give us a shout, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 7866 Or drop us an email. Business radio at sirsxm.com or hit us up on twitter at wmoneyball at wmoneyball anytime during the show matty d's up there during the show he's paying attention you guys can get us that way we're going to be doing a regular show this morning in that we have guests at the bottom of this hour and another guest at the top of next hour excited matt dropped us a note midday yesterday he said hey holly Rowe is on the show tomorrow that's good news that's a good way to start the 20s we're up for that we also have a, a friend of ours michael joiner A doc out of the Mayo Clinic who specializes in human performance, talking about running and other great feats. So, we've got those guests coming up. We've got open lines in this first quarter. We've got open lines in the last quarter. We've got a lot of sports to talk about. I am oh so curious, gents, about what has caught your eye in the world of sports.
1: Well, I figured since it's now our first show of the new decade... Oh, that should be... By the way, there's a, yes. a
0: difference of opinion on whether 2020...
2: I know, I know. I just want to get that I, out as I a nerd, qu- nerd observation. I, I know
1: there's a nerd observation on that. <laughs> um, here's the new math. The average of nine and five is not seven. Oh, yeah. It isn't. No. And, and where are you going with this? Okay, here's where I'm <laughs> going with this. So I spent Sunday at Lincoln Financial Field uh-huh, watching the Eagles play the Seahawks. I also spent Saturday evening watching the Patriots play the Titans, and when you have no receivers to throw to... Are you talking about the Eagles? I would, I would, and the Patriots. And the Patriots. And the Patriots. Okay. the Patriots. Then you have a problem, and what I mean by that is, I'd rather have a really good receiver, and let's we could define that in lots of ways, and an average receiver, than two good receivers. And that's what I mean by that. So, for example, the Eagles, the Patriots, had Edelman. There's no doubt Edelman's a good receiver. They also had Mohamed Sanu. There's no doubt Mohamed Sanu is a good receiver. And neither of them could get separation because both of them are good receivers and neither of them is a great receiver. As a matter of fact, Edelman leads, apparently, I didn't even know this. Edelman leads the league in drop passes.
2: Is this new for Edelman? I always thought Ed- Edelman was the, the key to Brady's success. Well, if you,
1: ask, if you ask Brady, Ed- he cost him a Super Bowl. Oh. He dropped the pass against the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. People forget the Eagles actually lost the lead in that game. They, the Eagles came back, took the lead on the Philly special play. Right. But it never would have come to that if Edelman would have caught a pass. As a matter of fact, in the game on Saturday, okay. on the game on Saturday, the Patriots were driving down 14-13. Edelman dropped another ball, which they were at midfield. So all I'm, I'm saying... But does been, he pass? he, leads he the league? more he, passes, passes the league. he leads the league and he leads passes. He leads the league and drop passes. They announced yeah. that during the telecast. All I'm commenting on is my new math is I'd rather have a 9 and a 5... This is a sevens. scale of,
2: of one of zero to ten. Essentially, let's imagine that's the scale. But, okay, but, I, this, I, is,
0: but I, this is this is actually kind of I think the cutting edge of football analytics right now is how do these things all come together? We, right. we we've been linear for too long. We've kind of pushed linearity as far as we can go in terms of analytics. Well, in now football, it's we, now, never been successful. <laughs> linearity. What, what's, well, it, it it works for some betters. I mean, it works good enough to understand that.
2: Okay, well, those are in the team level. The, I mean, at, team at the level. team level.
0: Well, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. We're talking about how do you, and this is an extremely relevant question to NFL teams as they decide how to allocate money. For example, in the free agent market that we're just right. around the corner from, how do they spread it out? They're going to go grab two, three guys. Do they want good starters or do they want to go for an, an All Pro level and a, and a, like a you know marginal a replacement guy? and Eric is arguing at the wide receiver spot that you'd rather that there's enough convexity that you'd sacrifice some a regular starter if you if you can go out and get an All Pro I
1: I, w- I wouldn't even say it's just for football in the wide receiver spot. I would say, you know, they say stars win now in the NBA. So how would you like to have, you know, A bunch of very good players. Let's take a team like the New Jersey Nets, who are a growing team. Without Kyrie Irving, obviously he's injured right now. They don't uh, have—Kevin Durant is is out possibly for the season. But they've got a bunch of very good players, and they would trade all of them to have two great players— and a bunch of okay players. But
2: that, you can expect that in basketball because, as you said many times, there's only one person can shoot. And if you have great, two great players, they're
1: going to do a predominance of well, the shooting. Well, let's talk about your, our favorite sport, baseball. Yes. It, it's, and, so baseball. Is, Would you and baseball. Let's talk about pitching and baseball. Yeah. Would you rather have two great starting pitchers or five pitchers that are okay. So in baseball, the analysis
2: has, and whether this is right or not, we can, we can actually debate it. But just to lay the groundwork, the war calculations, all the t- terms that are used would just say sum them up. They don't have any differential. They would not have a, a cross term in the quality of the player. But asking, so I can yeah.
0: I can believe that as you just roll through a four hundred and sixty two game regular season. But yes. then y'all ah, are always talking about strategy right, in, the, in the playoffs, and it seems to matter there.
2: It does. So that's a separate matter because then the then the you have the shift in who gets to do the pitching. And that's why it matters. So Mm -hmm. I was, as as, as I, I, Eric and I, we were on the show, I think maybe two weeks before we uh, go or so, and and I waxed ecstatic about the hiring of Jared uh, Cole for the Yankees because of, just because of that phenomenon.
0: You know, tell me guys real quickly. It feels to me as if, as often as we've seen a guy deliver this amazing performance, a top pitcher delivering a top performance in the playoffs, as often as we've seen that, we've seen the disappointments in the last few years. So if the whole thing is pressing, Predicated on well, you got to get in the playoffs with your two studs. Then one of those guys doesn't deliver because y'all are forever saying, "Well, all they got to do is get against Hamill, and then it's all over." Yeah, okay. it's like, well, it turns out that that's not the way it goes.
2: But there's two problems here. Let's not conflate them. So the problem of the linearity of the expectation, and that's what you're, you're essentially saying that it's not linear in football and basketball. Right. And I'm claiming that at least the current argument is it's linear in expected value for the for players, but not but variance is a whole separate matter. So you can spend money on expectation and not get it and that happens a lot and it's of course very disappointing. We even
1: talked about that, you remember Kate, on the air when we talked about which Garrett Cole the Yankees getting? The Mm -hmm. first five years or four years of his career where he was quite an average pitcher or the last four years and a lot of people are saying well it's been four years of the really good Garrett Cole. I'm like, Okay, but there still has to be some belief right. in your mind you may get the first four-year Garrett Cole, not T- the second
2: four-year. But my, my, my counter, not really a counter-argument, was the Yankees have the money to burn. Let them spend it. Hope they get it. If they don't get it, well, you know, okay.
1: <laughs> well, let me say why it's different. than you know, let me say why it's different. I've heard, obviously, Kate has done a huge amount of work on the NFL draft. The difference between the NFL draft is, of course, you know, you might draft eight, ten players. And in some sense... At the end, you don't really, you sort of care because of your salaries, but you just want to get, let's call it three or four good players. In some sense, you could argue you don't really care which ones they are. Mm-hmm. Here, if you get Garrett Cole, He's starting for the Yankees in the postseason. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't. He could have an awful regular season, and he's going to start one 4 seven. Yeah, he's one seven in the World Series, regardless. And so it's a little bit different because you've convinced me. Yeah, no team is that accurate. Saying, "Oh my God, Joe Burrow, he's going to be Joe Montana." You don't know that, mm-hmm. but you hope if you draft ten players, four of them, five of them are going to be really good. So it's a difference in in a, many sports. You have to pick which.
0: So my my claim on this this question we're discussing is that we're discussing it as opinions, and no one's actually running the numbers because it's hard to run those numbers. It's much easier in basketball where there are only ten guys on the court. You got twenty two players on the field. Really hard to measure all these nonlinearities we're talking about as a function of you know the, well, the would- quality in one position. And you're talking about wide receivers. What about linemen? What, how, does it, how about the defensive backfield? Do you want one guy who can really shut down a receiver and you can move everybody else and have some flexibility? You've got these, these potential nonlinearities all over the field. Really hard question empirically. But that is where the field is, and that's where the field needs to go.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the field going forward because I think you know, things like, well, there's nobody open. Well, we can measure that now. You know, you can, as yep. you've can you seen the yep. data. You can measure where people's location are on the field. And so, you know, this has always been the question that people have said in lots of sports. W- Wayne Gretzky was great. But the thing about what's made Wayne Gretzky great was he created space for other players. You hear this. Matter of fact, we had somebody on the show. I just forget the name. Messi and Ronaldo. It's not so much that they score every time. They create a ton of open space isn't, for other isn't players. It similar with LeBron James, isn't he create opportunities for everybody else? Well, that's why you need someone that gets double teamed in the yeah. NBA. If the other team can cover your guys one on one, and by the way, it's the same in the NFL. There was nobody in the Eagles game for the Eagles, and nobody for the Patriots. No wide receiver who could draw who needed who actually to had to be double teamed.
0: So who who is left where we see these kinds of challenges posed? So, for example, Kansas City. I'm curious about Kansas City. You know, Last year, they just took the world by storm. Mahomes has been out some this year. What do we expect of their offense? And how, now that the Pats are kind of faded away, it's just them or the Ravens really at the top. I mean, we can see some upsets, but the, the premier teams in the AFC are the Chiefs and the, and the Ravens. What are we expecting from the Chiefs? They used to be the team that exported all this space. We can't
2: be expecting that much because the current – Odds of the Ravens winning the Super Bowl is nearly fifty percent. Therefore, <laughs> they've got to be heavy favorites mm-hmm. all three mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Isn't that surprising given the explosiveness of the, of the Kansas I, City? I don't, team? I
1: don't. I don't. I, yeah, I don't. I don't see it. So someone's seeing more than. Very I, than surprising. I see I'm very surprised. I and actually one of the topics I was going to talk about today is to me maybe I'm going to be wrong. It almost seems like the AFC Championship game. Look, we thought the Titans weren't going to beat the Patriots. So who knows? It almost seems like the AFC championship game is a fait accompli. It's going to be the Ravens and the Chiefs. I mean, well, that's what both, the, that's what not, the odds. Just, are... I, no, no, yeah, that game. I'm just saying, it seems like that. What's well, about to be a out. nine point, a nine point favorite this this week? Yeah, both of them, both of them. But I'm saying, in the NFC, if I told you Seattle went into Green Bay, I don't think that would shock you. I think the Vikings, given the way they looked, I don't think it would shock you if they went in and beat San Francisco. I don't I wouldn't expect it. I wouldn't expect them to beat San Francisco. But I don't think most people thought they were going to go into New Orleans and beat New Orleans well, the tell way me, they well, did. T-
0: well, t- tell me about that. Let's talk about last weekend a little bit, because I, that that's the one game of the weekend that I'm not that interested in. I mean, I, I'm interested in all of them, only four, four of them, but. The Vikings, I remember watching that late-season game against Green Bay where Green Bay just dominated them. I mean, you would have thought Minnesota didn't deserve to be in the playoffs. Then they go down to New Orleans and do that. But San Francisco is probably the best team left in the NFC. It shouldn't be close. The line is seven. I'm, i I from for I still feel like the jury's out of Minnesota, or is something flipped for those guys.
1: Well, I, I the thing I don't know about the Green Bay game, maybe matter Zach can put it up on the screen. Did Dalvin Cook play in that game? The reason I say that is because he was a he's a huge. This is another example of a person who's a huge difference maker. Besides, he can run the football, he can catch the football out of the backfield. He's the kind of guy that you have to kind of scheme against just because of how great he is. And I'm not saying he's worth ten points for. For Minnesota, Okay, I'm not saying he's worth 10 points for Minnesota, but he could be a huge difference in the game. And the way I always view it is, again, only because I have squash on the brain, because I'm the parent of a squash kid, when you have to move up in the ladder, and what I mean by that is, when Julian Edelman has to be your number one receiver... You've got a problem. If Dalvin Cook's out of the game, all right. So now you can double Aaron Thielen. Now all of a sudden you can start doubling other guys. So, so to Aaron, me, I, it makes one slot in a in a professional sport with four or five players to me has always made a huge difference. But well,
0: this is, but you can't say always. This is the problem. This is exactly why we unless you, know, you have teams. depth well we don't i mean the question is wh- when can we be sure it's there and when and when is it not because it's almost certainly the case that people oversee those kinds of things my claim would be people oversee the difference that one player makes quarterbacks might be an exception but i think even there people put a bigger number on it than it deserves but outside of quarterback mostly one guy doesn't make that right. much but, when- but but sometimes but sometimes it does that's the trick <laughs> i mean Except yeah, you just a, don't know when that yeah, one time no, is. Yeah, no, but, exactly. So I'm kind but, of skeptical of these kinds of oh, stories.
2: But it's just not – But look, look. I watched the the Eagles game. I sat in a hotel room in Zurich watching the middle of the night,
0: and they you, have you've no come, one have come to. a long way. I've come you? a
2: long way. Yes, it's unbelievable that I have come this far. Um, yeah, because that game
1: started like a 10.45 uh, Zurich time. Yeah, That's Zurich impressive time. for yeah, you, Greg. Right? Uh,
2: the Eagles have no one to throw to. The, the entire so it's not just one. It's not just two. And, one, and once that happens, you are just looking that, like
0: that. I agree with and that, that that's kind of the flip of it. I feel like the the, the accumulation of a bunch of small injuries might even be under
2: under modeled yeah. exactly. Yeah.
0: But can't we but just I, I, let me just say I yeah. do think these players exist. I I agree with your your the potential that a guy can shift schemes enough that he can make a big difference. I just think it's generally seen more than it actually exists.
1: And, I, and I'm and i hoping we get to the day where we end up just having data on it. So we end up having data on, so how open are the receivers then? You know, matter of fact, it could even be in, look, let me just say what a good coach does. So what a good coach will do is to say, okay, Dalvin Cook's not playing Dalvin Cook is playing. We're going to change our play mix. That's another reason, by the way, it's hard to measure. It's not just about measuring the play's it's what plays are you calling now, given sure. the players that you have. That makes it even harder to measure. It even makes, if you can, I mean, no, I no, I'm think, saying I, that I, makes it yeah. even harder to I, measure. I, I, think that I know you're agreeing to, with me. That makes it harder. <laughs> I think
2: getting this data is not going to make the problem easily solved because that's there's so point. many complexities. <laughs> right. That's my point. Yeah, right. The, the plays, play the yards, the, the how quickly they get open. All these things matter, and they're going to be enormously confusing. But
0: but, but, don't, but don't, that's that's incumbent on us as an analytics yeah, community to, to either do it or be more humble about what we find. Who's not humble about <laughs> football? A lot of us aren't humble about football analytics, though. Okay. The community is largely not humble. I mean, analysts aren't known for being humble.
2: Well, you know, I do I do watch the Twitter feed on football analytics. I don't particularly participate, but there's a lot of back and forth. It um, seems to be that the analyst community feels one thing, and the actual on the field is something entirely different, particularly about running. And it just doesn't – it's like a huge battle. I mean, I don't know if the, our public is aware of this sort of confrontation. Well, do you want to elaborate on this? Because <laughs> – this seems to be what I'm observing as a, as a lurker in some of these. I don't do my own analysis in, in and. Oh
0: yeah, this is. I mean, th- I think that one's actually mm. beginning to translate into the practitioners. the The running backs don't matter, of course. That's overdone, and of course that's you know but, too uh, glib. But... but running itself is underdone. Yeah, yeah well, is... the run- running backs don't matter is like a it catch. It's the, an umbrella yeah, term yeah, for a, yeah. a phrase for a whole a whole lot. But we've seen the league move that way, and we've. Seen, I mean, the corner, corners get paid. It used to be. Edge rushers or left tackles were the second highest paid, and now the corners are the second highest paid. It's all because it's passed.
1: And how, let me ask a question. Given that they had no one to throw to, how certain now are you, like, that, you know, people want to put an obituary on Tom Brady's career saying he can't really play that well anymore, he slipped a lot. Well, he had no one to throw to, and Mm -hmm. no one was open. So how do, I mean, I'm just saying, you put him on, I don't know, put him on the Ravens or the 49ers or the Chiefs with yeah. those weapons. Yeah. I, I mean,
0: how do we know anything we about quarterbacks? I mean, people are still wondering whether Josh, Josh Allen's any good. He's two years in, and some people are like, oh, my God, this guy is, the draft people were wrong. This guy is so good. And others are like, well, you look at the numbers, and actually, Bills, you shouldn't get too excited. And others are like, well, we still don't you know. Oh, I know. That, that if that Historically, if you look at guys who have hit stats through the first two years, most of them don't pan out long term. But there are a couple of exceptions, a couple of guys turn around. So I think the odds are a little against him. Kind of surprisingly, despite the success the Bills have had, the odds are probably a little against him. But it's amazing that we're two years in, two years, 32 regular season games. Thirty-three with the playoffs, and we still don't know who Josh Allen is. I,
1: I have to admit that game was a little bit painful for me to watch just because I have you know Bills connections to our mutual friends. Um, I was oh my root-
0: god, these guys have been through so much. I was rooting, I was
1: rooting for the Bills in that game, and it looked like, of course, they had the game. They were certainly up big in the game, and just all kinds of little plays. And by the way, what's interesting about that game is, given the Seahawks and the Eagles game was basically a pick'em. I mean in some sense well Houston was the favorite they didn't cover. This shows you what we know and don't know and how much variance there is. Houston was the favorite they did not cover. The Saints were the favorite not only did they not cover they lost the game. The Patriots were the favorite they did not cover. Seattle was the one team that covered. I mean it was 17 to 9 it was a pick 'em game but I'm just saying there's obviously huge
3: variation. Yeah, you would have made a lot sure. of money just
1: betting dogs this week.
2: Right. I wanted to ask you guys we mentioned the the um the Ravens. If the Ravens are to win the whole thing. That's about 0.8 cubed. Yeah. That's is that whoa. tell us tell
0: us about the relevance of point eight cubed. I
2: mean, that's just point eight to eighty. So you have to essentially to get to get fifty percent, you have to have an eighty percent chance of winning all three games. If you have an eighty percent chance of winning all three games, you multiply the three, and you're right around
0: fifty percent. Well, we can be sure that they're not going to be eighty in the Super Bowl. So if you dial that's, that's you, if you dial one issue. down well, to point six well, or point six five, the only need?
2: tough game is the game against arguably against um, KC. No, what would be their hardest game? The San, Super Bowl, San, San Francisco. Francisco? Green Bay.
0: Okay, but here it, it,
2: I'm just not following how we can get to here's this where
0: it comes from. They are substantially better, according to the models, than any other team. But eighty percent. So, Adi, the, the, our models have them as the best team in the last fifteen years, other than the 07 Pats. And that's, that's that's really elite territory. But even okay. at 0.
1: 0.9, because well, I mean, I'm going to Adi's math. Yeah. The, this is, by the way, what's great about multiplicative models. Because mm. if you believe the Super Bowl's 0. 0.6, which, by the way, is also a pretty big odds, then you have to have 0. 0.9 times 0. 0.9 in the other two games to get to 50%. Yes, And, and well, so I believe
2: in the normal model, which which means that the point differential <laughs> is normally distributed and the, dip, the standard deviation is something like 12 or 12 and a half. And therefore, if I use your your Massey Peabody, that's not 85%. It, is, it isn't. A five-point advantage over, say, KC, which isn't even five-point. It's four, four points. Point. a little over four. No, they may be home field. Home so skills, seven, that's not going to... It's still not 85. That's right? the toughest game.
0: Yep. Well, we can just walk through the numbers because they are going to get you to 50%. And it is all because Baltimore is plus 13 right now in terms... They'd be 13-point favorite against a neutral team on, on against an average team on a neutral field. KC, eight and a half. So we're talking about, what that's, is that, four and a half plus home field. So it's a seven point seven line. Seven point. And then San Francisco is all the way down to five and a half. So we're talking about six and a half. But that's on a neutral field. That's a truly neutral field. Yeah. So those two games should be approximately the same line. And, and course, I think
2: about seven points is uh, two, two to one. Well, we can. I mean, we can. This
0: is not. This is a known thing. We well, can work through the math. Way, it's math. not
1: an over under. Let's just all make our picks. Baltimore, the field. Let's just do it right now. I'll take uh, Baltimore. All right, this is an early one. Okay, I love it. I'm doing Baltimore. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in. I'm taking
0: the field. I'm always a field guy. I can't not take the I field. I would. All right, I'll <laughs> take Baltimore sack trap. You know, our
1: associate <laughs> producer is going to write it down. I'll take Baltimore. All right, I just I'm say, since the it's field. 50-50, it's very simple. I'll take it's Baltimore. It's a great over under,
0: yeah. but, but there it is. Just don't, I'm just not buying me, it. Don't make me pick. Don't make me pick against the Ravens. All right, this is Wharton <laughs> Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday. This is the first show of the year. Delighted to be back. Have Cade in here along with Adi and Eric, fellas. What about on the college side of things? We've got the national championship coming up Monday.
1: Well. I don't want to you know, I assume Massey Peabody and all the other, you know, really good systems out there had to feel pretty vindicated about what happened in the semifinal game. I mean, OSU and Clemson was a close game. Anybody could have won that game. I mean, you, you look at the result of the game and easily OSU could have won the game. And most people thought, as did Massey Peabody and others, LSU-Oklahoma was not going to be particularly close and it was not particularly close. And so... um that seemed to go according it's the to the inverse
2: way... of
0: the wild card game. Yeah, it's, which just, we're all it's, it's just
1: the way, matter of fact, those scores, you just wrote them out. That was about right. Well, except maybe no, LSU no, won. But. Yeah,
0: no one expected forty-nine, fourteen at halftime or whatever LSU did to Oklahoma. My God, that was brutal. Enjoyable, I should say, <laughs> <laughs> brutal. Um, that well, before we talk about the championship game, were there any other highlights for you over the holidays? You know, your holidays and bowl games are you know they go hand in hand. It so, used any, to any be. Highlights?
2: I'm, I'm going to recall when I was you know I don't know how many years ago, but I remember January first was when all the bowl games happened of any that mattered, and I don't think that's yeah, true anymore. Ones. No,
0: that was the there it was four it was, days was of the 70s well for a long time 70s, and there yeah. were four big ones rose sugar orange and cotton yeah. and and we could even tell you the television schedule mm-hmm. you know for that for that day and of course that's not quite what we have anymore but you still have 40 games or whatever so you got a lot of football happening did you pay any attention did anything jump out
1: well to you? Uh, you know I always am interested in, you know, the two games that interested me, I said it before the playoffs started, the outside of the playoff games that interested me, were Alabama-Michigan. Anytime Jim Harbaugh's in a big game and loses it again, that always interests me. And that was, I don't say particularly, I didn't know how much they were going to lose by, but I, I felt good about Alabama over Michigan. And, of course, just because my wife's a Penn Stater, but also Penn State played Memphis, and Memphis was the top of the non-Power 5, group of five five schools. And that was a—I mean, Penn State won the game. It was a competitive game, though. I mean, Memphis showed that—I'm not saying they deserve to be in the top four. I'm not pulling one of those. But they were a good team. Those were the two games outside of the big ones— of the semifinal games, Alabama, Michigan, and Penn State, Memphis interested me. Mm-hmm. They
2: did. I
0: watched all of them. So, mm-hmm. what do you
2: make of this current crop of uh, quarterbacks coming out of college into the pros within a year it, or two?
0: Well, we take let's take them a year at a time because we're, we're anticipating that in twenty twenty one that draft you'll have Trevor Lawrence. Well, he can't. He's not eligible 2020, yet. Twenty twenty one. So yeah. we're talking two years from now right. or a year and a half from now. You'll have a really interesting draft again because Fields out of Ohio State probably they both come out early, but this year everyone's you know already committed burrow to number one the, the, the bingles you know i was thinking about it the way in today i when i when i was younger i really kind of held it against eli manning that he didn't want to play for the chargers or whatever he did right I, I mean poor guy i don't i mean it worked out well in the giants i wouldn't wish the johnson anybody anymore but now i better understand why a player might do that if you get drafted by a really terrible franchise I mean, this is you know. Well, what remember, did he
2: do you do? Remind me what Eli what Manning Eli, did. You,
0: you have to understand. Eli is the son of Archie Manning, yeah. who spent his career with the New Orleans Saints, who weren't the New Orleans Saints of today. Back then, they were, you know, they were the aints. They were the guys who wore the the fans wore the bags over the head. They were a terrible franchise. Manning, a great quarterback, presumably, seemingly had a terrible run because he's so. Surely that influenced Eli's decision to refuse to play, and they so they they traded him basically. A player. This can was sit, the Chargers
1: between the Chargers right. and the Giants. A
0: player can sit a year and and be eligible for the draft the next year if they want to. And it's you know this is I don't know maybe it's crazy, but the Bengals are such a travesty of a franchise. Well, it's not clear to me that well, Barrow should take that.
1: I wanted to ask you so there to me there are three, maybe even more. You probably know more. Three very good quarterbacks potentially coming out this year. So one is Joe Burrow, one is Tua, T- we,
0: we Tua. Know, we know who Tua Tua is, Tua uh, is Tua from T. Alabama, and then one could argue Herbert. Yeah, Herbert. Well, so, coming into the year, a lot of people thought he was the best. No, prospect.
1: that's my question. So my question for you is, I mean, maybe everything will always go wrong the Bengals' way. As we project out five years, their rookie contracts, how confident are you that Burrow is going to be the best of those three.
0: That's a great. I like because put everybody it.
1: may. By the way, lots of people. If you could trade up to get number one, a lot of people would say, "Of course you do it." You know, of course you trade up to get number one. Like well, historically, how long? How
2: How, no, how well has that held up? Is the number one quarterback taken in the draft much better than than two? And and but you're asking a different question, which is is number one better than all the others? And I think that's
1: rare. But you're also a priors person. I am. If you had gone into this season. Herbert was probably the number one quarterback going into the season. And I'm not saying Joe Burrow didn't have an extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, going into the season, potentially to be number one in the draft. So if you were the Bengals, would you trade down, get a landslide of picks, and draft Tua or draft Herbert? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> <laughs> how's that?
0: Yes, well, it's such a it's such a tough question, um, and it's the right question, and it's. And, but I and, wanted to and, ask and, you a voice. No, yeah. it's
2: not a tough question. Come on, I read your paper. <laughs> I mean, well, I, and, and
0: and look, am I'm, I misunderstanding I'm, it? No, but look, it's early to be talking about the NFL draft, so let's not do this in full detail. But I, I, my position has moved some over time, and I, we can talk about the details. But g- given the change in the game. Mm -hmm. And given one detail in the paper, my position is softened on on quarterbacks, quarterbacks at the top. And I mean Thaler Thaler likes to fight. So his his position hasn't stopped at all. But so historically, we'd say, yeah, you always trade out that top spot. But if you need a quarterback and you have a prospect that is as highly regarded as Burrow is, and we've had, you know, every five or six years you get someone come out. You know, Andrew Luck was the most recent one where it's just seems like. So are you saying
2: that Burrow is more highly regarded than the five or six that we've seen in the last couple of years?
0: Yeah, the the last couple. I off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of who the best. Pro- yeah, I would say probably above all those guys. I mean, I bet you might go back to Andrew Luck before you find someone who's as highly regarded as Bird. Yeah, I mean, I you know, obviously there somebody. was
1: Winston, Mariota, Goff. There was um,
0: no. I think all those guys are gonna. I think to be above. Be, yeah, he would Burroughs be, be thought of those. above that. You know, what but, do you make of his age?
2: Given that, like for example, many of them are 20, 21, and he's twenty-three. 24. Yeah, I think that
0: age makes a lot of difference in the NFL two draft. Red, two redshirt years, fourth years, six yeah, years. But it, here's the: I don't know the empirics on this. It's, it's, a, it's a it's a relevant question because mostly for NFL players, you like to see them come out young, and older works against you in the models. Quarterbacks, I bet that's not the case. And I bet that it doesn't hold. I doesn't. It doesn't hurt him much. But you might say, well, he's just had. You were probably overestimating him relative yeah. to the candidates because he's had this extra year of maturity. My bigger question is, to what extent has he benefited from the system they have down there and the athletes he's been surrounded by? It's so hard to separate that. But I mean, he makes that system go, but also that system gives him without the, the, tools. Without
1: the new LSU offense and all I'm the not conv- and I know. The I'm not convinced that he, all of a sudden his look doesn't mean he wouldn't be as good, but we wouldn't have observed what we observed this year if LSU hadn't fundamentally changed under Ogeron this year. Well, we that's, just wouldn't that, have seen that's it. That's
0: such a good point, Eric, and it's phenomenal, really. So imagine this is the same guy if he had played under last year's offensive coordinator or, or passing game coordinator, whatever Brady's title is right now. If he had played under a different system, he would not be the number. He'd be no. the same guy. He'd be the exact same, same guy, guy with all the same potential. That's
2: why, yes. This is why I I I'm 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 more on the Thaler side of this. I think we just don't understand it well enough yeah. to put to not take up the opportunity of letting everyone overpay for yeah. that first pick and just get a trove a treasure trove so of I, picks I, going
0: That's a strong strong base rate. A lot of evidence in that direction. The the thing that's different about quarterbacks is that y- you tend to keep them if you get them. So the, they they mm-hmm. get they. You get all these extra years of surplus. So we, when we ran that model, we we, we were like, well, you're going to draft a drafted guy and you get surplus for five years, and then they turn free agents and you either lose them or they get paid market. Well, a lot of quarterbacks don't get paid market when they come up. Brady gave away probably a hundred million dollars back to the right. bat so they can build a team around. So you're talking about you, it's not five years if you get a franchise guy. It's like fourteen 10, years. But I think it's
1: also how do you you know I, the way I asked the question, which I I'm glad that Cade liked was maybe you have roughly the same grade on those three. I'm just saying, we think, you know, everyone's putting Burrow above the other two, but maybe he's not that far above the exactly. other That's two.
2: Exactly, my... Because I, I read uh, 538 ran an, an interesting article sort of claiming he potentially had the best college f- uh, quarterback season ever. Um, yeah. And um, they went through the analysis, but when it, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting is that... And I'm used to looking for this in baseball: those ancillary stats, those hundred mile an hour fastballs at pinpoint control. You can't measure that. And the things that they were measuring that are kind of quantifiable that don't necessarily relate directly to on-field performances just didn't seem to be extraordinary. He doesn't have the strongest arm. um, Doesn't have the fastest. I don't know. He's not the fastest runner. He's no what. I I mean, I, I
0: don't know his his. But his like his his completion percentage like. Under duress and with a clean pocket are both like miles above the next guy. There there are some numbers that are pretty closely related to performance that look pretty dang good you but,
1: mean maybe he's a seven on lots of things and you'd rather have someone that's a nine on certain <laughs> things and five on others wow i oh, wish we had talked about that but,
2: but only in forecasting that's a different I question
1: don't. we were talking about
2: actual there we were talking about on the field and right now and i'm really talking about prediction
0: but look if you're going to tell if you're going to say do you think that people are too sure that he's the best of the three that's the one thing in this whole discussion yep. i'm really sure of is that people are too sure that he's that's the best right of the, now they, you might still take him But don't kid yourself about the certainty with which he will be the best of the three. Well said. All right. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us.
3: You're listening
2: to Wharton Moneyball.
3: On Business Radio.
0: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and faculty colleagues here at the Wharton School, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Shane Jensen is out and about doing Shane Jensen things. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning talking sports analytics. You guys can join us. We'd love to hear from you. one wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at sirsxm.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball is the handle, at WMoneyball. Great way to reach out to us. Great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. In this half hour, we are delighted to welcome Michael Joyner. Michael is a physician researcher at the Mayo Clinic. He's one of the world's leading experts in human performance and exercise physiology delighted to have you Michael good morning to you.
3: Kate, great to be with you.
0: Where are you calling from this morning?
3: I'm calling from my office at St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester Minnesota where I can look out and see the snow and ice and uh, you know we're not that far from the frozen tundra in Green
0: Bay. no you're kind of you're yeah that's right you got what well, you've still got in your' part of the world you've still got a couple of football teams in the battle. How happy are the folks of Minnesota these days? with the Vikings pulling it out down in New Orleans.
3: Well, I, I think that they're very pleased about it, but I have to tell you my wife is from Green Bay, so I'm kind of a, you know, a, a fifth column here in Minnesota. Uh, oh
0: my goodness. Yeah, right. That's going to get I you think in they're trouble. I'm very
3: really happy about it, but you know, the narrative with the Vikings for so many years has been they have when one player away and, and person x or person y or person z is going to lead them to the promised land yeah and that's certainly been the the narrative with cousins so we'll see what happens out in san francisco and then we all know the narrative this year with green bay is that they they uh you know have turned winning ugly into an art form oh yeah and will we see the real aaron Rodgers anytime soon
0: well it's it's fun that it's it's fun that they're still in the battle that you got this great rivalry that's gonna that's gonna play a part of the the playoffs. It's not something that happens that often. So that's good stuff. But listen, we, we, we we've got other people to talk football with. We've got harder questions for you, Michael. Uh listen, you've done you know, you you're a consultant to the National Institutes of Health, you're a consultant to NASA, you've been at Mayo for a long time. And, uh, really your specialty is human performance. You've got an interest in world records. We're curious, like, how did you get, how did you, we've got some specifics for you, but how did you get going in this whole uh, specialty? And moreover, how does it work with your day job? I mean, you're, you're an anesthesiologist at at Mayo. We think of you as, you know, helping put put people under for operations and keeping them stable. But here you are opining on world records. How does that work?
3: So I was a pretty good distance runner at the university of Arizona. I was a terrible student, Cade, and I was going to drop out of college and become a Tucson City fireman. Okay. And I was recruited at age 19 to be a subject in a study on something called the anaerobic or the lactate threshold, which is a critical determinant of performance. I went in December of 1977 to to participate in this study in the lab in, in Tucson under McHale Center uh, bleachers, where the basketball team out there plays. And uh, I got addicted the first time I ran on, on the treadmill, had my blood drawn, uh, have a square wave uh, GPA, went from flunking out to getting almost a 4.0, <laughs> and then got interested in exercise research. So then people say, what are you doing, doing anesthesiology? Well, um, you know, when, when people are exercising and exercising at the world record level, all the body systems have to be in sync. They have to be tightly regulated, and there has to be tremendous feedback control. When somebody is put to sleep, we turn all those normal mechanisms off, and the anesthesiologist becomes essentially uh, the, the, the nervous system, the, the parts of the brain, and other things that that regulate body temperature, mm. fluid status, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So really they're the flip side of the same coin. And um, the other thing is if you think a lot about exercise, you think a lot about things like oxygen transport when people are, for example, running you know near two hours for the marathon. Mm-hmm. And, again, that's what we think about during Anesthesia and also critical care. How do we get the oxygen from outside of the body to inside of the body? So, mm-hmm. so it seems paradoxical, but in reality, uh, there are just two extremes on on, on the physiology curves.
0: Mm-hmm. And what is it, w- one last question about what, what it's like up there at Mayo, how often are you practicing medicine versus doing research on on these questions you have around human performance? So,
3: so I, I practice medicine one day a week, uh, and 80% of my time is, is is doing research, and I have grants from the NIH, as you mentioned, to study uh, oxygen in humans and, and muscle blood flow, blood pressure regulation. So a lot of my grant-funded research is on, on biomedical problems. And really, the data mining and other things we do about world records are uh, kind of, um, uh, I don't know whether you call them hobbies yeah. or, or, or intellectual brain candy that we do, but they also yeah. inform our, our research questions.
1: So, Michael, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, How much of it, you know, why not ask you the same question I'd like to ask every scientist? Is it nature or nurture? Are there some people that just have better, so much better oxygenation levels than others? Or can this be something that's trained? (laughs) I think that's the answer, It could be both. It could be a high (laughs) intercept and a high slope. Let's hear. The answer
3: to this is both. So so there's clearly biological talent. And people have it. and, And you see this with people that have become very good very fast. And, but it's been very, very difficult through large genetic studies to identify specific genes or even combinations of gene variants DNA to get a DNA explanation for this. So that's the first thing that people have to recognize. The next thing that people have to recognize is that most people can get way, way, way better. And so that, that becomes then your definition of elite. And, and this sounds nuts to most people today, but back in the late 70s and early 80s, the number of people that were breaking three hours for the marathon or even two hours and 45 minutes for the marathon was, just, was, was quite high. And you saw all sorts of body types doing it. So can people improve and can people become way, way better than they were? Absolutely. Can that happen in almost everybody? Absolutely. Do we know what sets the elite among the elite in terms of the nature part? Uh, 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 not, you know, what sets them apart? No. And do we have clear explanations for it? No. Now, we understand the physiology. They have big hearts, big lungs. Uh, For the endurance athletes, plenty of slow-twitch skeletal muscle fibers and so forth and so on. But but there isn't a clear genetic explanation for how they get that way.
2: Can, uh, let me ask you a specific question. This is Audie Weiner. Um, we don't know the genes, but do can we identify lineages? And what I mean by lineages, can you identify family strains? Are there particular? I know my family strains right. um, not on the good side of this. Um, but well, are there family strains that, that really are terrific? We see this in professional sports. Correct. Um,
3: and, and you see that, you know, I always I have a slide in one of my talks of the Alou family, uh, where, where not only you have the three brothers, you have children, and and uh, uh, Grandpa Lou had a side family with a second woman, and a couple of those guys made it uh, to to uh, the major leagues or at least the high minors. So that that becomes a, again a nature nurture question. You certainly can do this, and you can see certain parts of the world, for example, the uh, East Africans, the Kenyans, and the Ethiopians, or or, or people of West Af- African descent who are excellent sprinters but again it's hard to know whether that's nature or nurture because you have early exposure the, the people in east africa typically run to school at high altitude starting when they're very young you see examples in the in four corners region of the us where the native american kids dominate high school across country and run superb times, but it's been uh, difficult for a variety of social reasons to get a lot of those kids to continue to run in college and beyond that. So so it, it becomes very, very tricky to do this. Um, there's certainly been excellent talent ID programs, especially in rowing. Rowing is a sport that favors large people with a high aerobic capacity. And uh, there's been a tremendous talent. Idea again in, in Australia and in, in Great Britain, especially, to identify such people.
0: So, Michael, hold on. So, let's hear more about this because like, I think this is one of your positions. You say, "Look, this genetic thing. We're going to test everyone. We're going to identify them that way." You're you're not that you're not that big on that because you think it's too complicated. We haven't figured that out yet. So You're correct. a little short that method. And your your preferred method is, "Look, let's just get a bunch of people. Let's cast a wide net." Have Hill them do tip. the thing and just pick the best ones. Yeah, but
2: you're already yeah. presuming that they've trained up to get some.
0: No. Uh, I, mean, the, cause, I mean, Michael's going to talk about rowers. You just pull a rowing machine at the mall and get the guys who. I, I, mean, you, so, so
2: I always thought the big thing to figure out is, is who has the best capacity to get better. So it's not where you well, are now, but yeah, where it, are you, it, how it, you'll it, respond to training.
3: So trainability is an issue. But you want to peop- start with people
2: that are
3: the right size for the sport.
2: Right. Well, that's of course you're not gonna you can't train up height.
3: <laughs> right. One of the issues with these distance runners is 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 the the East Africans are tiny, tiny men. Yeah. They're average around five, six, or 120, 125 pounds. So if you look at at elite uh, uh, distance runners from from from, um, from more from more developed or, or well off countries, even people like Galen Rupp or before that, Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers are a size larger than these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the first thing you've got to recognize. So you would get people in the right kind of size range. And then you could do some very simple field testing. And depending on the nature of the sport, but especially things like rowing, cycling, some jumping events, uh, those translate, you know, the the skills are not, you you don't have to be, you know, playing golf from the time you're six or eight and develop a set of skills. Those are really measures of of some part of, quote, the engine, unquote.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And so if you identify people that fit into a wide kind of a, a wide base, and then you see who responds to training and who's into it um, you know mentally, you have a chance to do do well
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and, it's I mean, int- there,
3: there are three thousand kids a year in the United States who break four thirty for the mile in high school. Wow yeah, right. And in in, for a lot of reasons in the olden days, a lot of those people continued to run in college and beyond and became elite athletes. there's That has now stopped where there's a tremendous leaky pipeline in this country of what I call wasted aerobic talent. You mm-hmm. can make the same case uh, for people that can break 11 seconds for 100 meters. Most of those people are not going to go on to be world-class sprinters in running, but what could they do in terms of track cycling? What could they do in terms of speed skating?
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
3: there's a tremendous amount of wasted talent uh, out there, and the way to identify it would be through simple field testing, which you were talking about football earlier as I, as I, as I listened in, is – you know they don't do muscle biopsies and gene tests in the NFL. They run the forty, right?
0: And uh, and we can argue about the forty. I mean, the forty is only right. yeah, only, yeah. only a little bit diagnostic, and they're increasingly testing other things. But right, they're not doing some kind of genetic test. Yeah. They're they're Verti- putting Verti- them
3: through vertical jump because these are complex, multifactorial movements that they're asking people to do, right? And and to get a sense of their 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 kind of baseline athletic ability or athleticism, right? And and and. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to get a blood test that's ever going to tell you who's going to run a forty faster than anybody else. In fact, the person who's got the the, the, the um, most fast twitch fibers ever seen on a skeletal muscle biopsy uh, is a guy named Hiro Tanaka, who's an exercise scientist at the University of uh, University of uh, Texas. So. So yeah, it it's it's going to be very difficult to do this.
0: So we're talking to Michael Joyner. He is a physician researcher at the Mayo Clinic. He is an anesthesiologist one day a week and doing research on all kinds of complicated physiological issues uh, other days including a, a real passion for human performance. You wrote an article on in the wake of the 2 minute the 2 hour marathon being broken. You wrote an article about what it would take to run a 150 marathon and you, and you set it out into the future, you know, whatever it was a hundred years from now. And you, and you set it as a speech by your granddaughter. It was very, it was an entertaining and provocative piece, but in it, you more or less go through what you anticipate to be the real factors that drive the correct. next eight, nine minutes. And Bouncy you, shoes. Is you, that what you need? You, well, this is one of the places <laughs> well, we're going to go. Cause you dismissed a couple and you put your chips in a few other places. Correct. And so, so I just so wanted so to hear you break that down
3: for some background in 1991. Uh, when I was quite young, you know, 30 or 32, I wrote an article saying people could, could break, theoretically could break two hours for the marathon, published it. And and I wrote this as a model, just like you guys make models, more to understand what we don't know, because the record then was around 207. And what became a model ultimately turned into a prediction and so forth and mm-hmm. so on. And so then mm-hmm. I asked myself after Elliot Kipchoge broke two hours in Vienna in October, what would 150 take? Mm-hmm. And, a couple of things one is 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 i think that that it would take a um potential moderate amount of pharmacologic intervention and and one of the issues that's emerged here in kind of the post victor conte uh um balco situation is is drug testing has gotten better but mostly uh, uh, industrial strength doping has been eliminated so it's still possible to use microdosing And it's very difficult to test for it. And and I I, I envision a future where, where people don't ban substances. They just say, here are the parameters that are allowed.
0: So, Michael, and hold on one a, second. Let's understand this. So, one, you're going to need to tell us what microdosing is. And, two, I think right. you're saying instead of looking for the substance, we're going to look at the parameters of your blood and say th- everybody right. can be um, at this I, level. I, I, I know
2: you're going to probably address this, but human variation is enormous. So,
3: Right. Well, and, and people have told me that if you look at some of some of the uh, uh, um, cross-country skiers from, a, from a, uh, one country in particular that's been implicated with systematic doping, is they all look like identical twins. So microdosing is very low mm. doses of these drugs below uh, detection limits of current current uh, drug testing. And and those very low doses of these drugs would then permit people to get very, very small bumps in key parameters like red blood cell count. Yeah. Uh, but, Michael, so you Michael, you're
0: have... saying you're saying the guys in supposedly cheating countries, these Nordic skiers, they look identical, despite Audi's claim that everybody yes. varies. They look identical right. because, because they're, they're all maxed up. They've been tweaked to look identically. They've been maxed right, up Raymond, either, that's it.
3: Wow. Well, either through training but I think probably a, a more a reasonable thing is is that they've they've uh, tweaked their values through doping to to the to the you know right to, to the optimal the, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, Michael, let me ask you. Um, yeah. I've always, this isn't it, to me, it'll give me how close we are to a 150 marathon. So, I think if a person ran a 420 mile for 26.2 miles, you right. would get to 150. So, uh, how?
3: Maybe a little faster than that. But okay, I'll 418, anyway.
1: maybe 417. Yep. How long can somebody run at that pace? Like, could somebody do a half marathon now at that pace and we just need them to be able to run the second half? That's like, ah, a good way how, to phrase it. Thank you. Yep. How, Excellent. How, yeah, how yep. close are we to a pace how far can someone run at that pace?
3: The the, the current world record uh, for ten thousand meters is about twenty six point three minutes. So what's four times twenty six point three?
1: One hundred five point two. That's not enough.
3: No, that's, that's faster. Forty five, and then you got to run two more kilometers. So so people can run people can run ten thousand meters roughly at that pace. Okay. Roughly at that pace,
2: but that's a f- tiny it's fraction exactly. of a marathon
3: yeah well well, it's a, it's, it's ten thousand and a marathon's forty two kilometers so it's a fourth of it, so yeah, so people can go that go that fast, for but a
2: while. if you put it this way, it looks a whole hell of a lot further than one fifty does to two
3: mm-hmm. so so anyway so so but to go back to it, I think one is is, is that that what I envision is 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 like I always say so I think that there will be some um you, you know I envision a world. Where performance enhancement is not necessarily a, a negative w- word, and we certainly allow performance enhancement in other places, and that low dose uh, uh, low dose uh, doping will be tolerated.
2: Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. We allow <laughs> performance enhancement in other arenas. What do you mean? Yeah. By we, we allow it in repair injury. Certainly, we, well, we
3: let people we let we let uh, people get Botox.
2: Oh, we're not, <laughs> non-athletic. non-athletic,
3: We're, we're athletic okay athletes.
2: with that in, in 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 subjective matters like how you look. Okay,
3: and I, we have anti-aging clinics. We have people that are uh, doing various forms of cognitive enhancement we have the undergraduates at your institution who may or may not be repurposing ADHD drugs to grade dope. Uh,
2: may or may not. Emphasis on the may.
3: <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, and, and so forth. So, so, so you know, it, it's very subjective. The next thing I think is what we talked about earlier in terms of this talent ID is that, that um, you know, if, if, if some large shoe company said to me, go find a bunch of elite distance runners, what I would do is go to the high-altitude cities of South America, the things that are you know, eight, nine, 10,000 feet or higher, and I would go and screen every uh, uh, 16-year-old soccer player. And I guarantee you, you'll find a few people that can run a half mile in close to two minutes or, or, or faster, and I would mm-hmm. then get those people and subject them to, to uh, the sorts of training that are required. Uh, to become an elite distance runner, and I think you might find some some remarkable uh, talents there, if you looked. Uh, but it would have to be systematic, and something similar, like I mentioned, the Australians and the and the English have done with the rowers. So small people, mm-hmm. large lung capacity, uh, lifetime at altitude, who've been physically active their whole life, uh, uh, running around, uh, playing soccer.
1: So. So, Michael. I, I, yeah, this is Eric Bradley. Maybe one last question for me. Yeah. How much is IQ needed? Could somebody with a below-average IQ? I mean, is intelligence needed? Is it needed because you can train better? Is it needed in any way? Is that a, or, or another way? Put it this way: Is there a, is there a rate-limiting part? You know, could somebody with you an know, eighty 30, IQ I, be a great runner?
3: Yeah, I think you know. I think that there are plenty of people who have, have, who, have, who 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 wouldn't be candidates for admission at your school. Who uh, have done fine in distance running, but I think you would have to have some baseline level and 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 you know be able to be uh, at the level of, of somebody who can graduate from high school and, and and would be qualified to be sort of an enlisted person in the in the military. So mm-hmm.
2: you wouldn't do a sort of mating or anything of that. You would look, you know. Oh well, gosh, there may be some
3: I mean, of that. Yeah, there may be some of that going on naturally, already. Naturally,
2: right? You know, a superstar well, a female Flanagan's and a superstar man, right?
3: Shalane Flanagan's uh, parents were both excellent runners. OK, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her mother, I believe, at one point was the world record holder as women were permitted to run uh, the marathon. And her father was an excellent distance runner as well. So those
0: Michael, Michael, what about many, we're down in just a couple of minutes? What about yeah. shoes? The New York Times presented a, 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 yeah, an exhaustive I, I, article about Vaporfly next correct. percentage Nike shoes that seem to be a real difference maker.
3: Couple things. One is is that was known for a while. In fact, there's a there's a tuned track, not shoes, up at Harvard that somebody built in the late '70s that was associated with about a two to three percent improvement in performance. So I think a couple things. One is make the track better. That would get you maybe one or two percent. The shoes probably are closer to one to two percent in elites. If you look at the people that where they got the five percent number. It's hard to know how much of that is the shoes, how much of these people trained harder, how much they looked for faster races. I've helped a couple people recently who've gotten nice PRs, just giving them some kind of casual advice. And, and certainly they felt the shoes help, but they were also running about 20 or 30% more, and they also found very fast races to compete
0: mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm. One so, of the things so you're not mentioning, Michael, is training. I think you're kind of an old-school guy when it comes to know, training.
3: I, I, people have been training as hard as possible, Cade, since, since the 1960s. It's yeah. going to be very difficult for mechanical reasons to get people to train more because you just get to an injury situation.
4: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think
3: with you know low-dose drugs, the right track, perfect environmental conditions, uh, uh, casting a very wide net for talent ID, and 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 I, again, like I said, the combination of the shoes and track and so forth, I think people could run quite a bit faster. Yeah, but as I but as I pointed out in that little article I wrote, it was in uh, 2091. Yeah, right. <laughs> when, it's going to uh, be a few my years. Hypothetical granddaughter right. was giving the the Victor Conte Memorial lecture at the society for human performance Enhancement. That's awesome so things would have to change
0: that's awesome we'll look forward to Michaela Joyner's presentation here in a few years Michael Joyner thank you for your time this morning love the work that you're doing we wish you the best with it
3: yeah great to chat you guys nice to visit
0: absolutely Michael Joyner doctor researcher at the Mayo Clinic an anesthesiologist and specialist in human performance that has been the first half the first two quarters of Wharton Money Bob we sell two quarters ago come back and join us after the break
1: You're
2: listening to Wharton Moneyball
3: on Business Radio.
0: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade massey hosting this morning with my longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators and Wharton faculty colleagues, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen's out today. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can be here, too. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or hit us up on email, businessradio at sirsxm.com, businessradio at sirsxm.com. Sounds old school. We'll, ta- we'll still take your email. We'll even do it real time. Maddie's watching right now. Or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball. At w Moneyball is our handle up there. Just off the phone with Dr. Michael Joyner. Wanted to tell you, you can follow him on Twitter. Very interesting Twitter feed at Dr. M. Joyner. Dr. M. Joyner, if you want to follow Michael up there, talking about human performance. In this half hour, delighted to have Holly Rowe Holly Roy joining us. Holly, of course, longtime reporter for ESPN. She's been there 20 years now. A real college football expert, but she covers a zillion sports. Too many sports to keep track of, actually. I'm not sure how how she does all that she does. Holly, good morning to you and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. So we've just lost Holly. We had her earlier. She's down. She's 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 she is she she will be back. We're gonna we're gonna to talk to Holly, Rowe. Holly is Holly's longtime ESPN reporter. You guys see her. She covers Monday nights, big Monday nights in college basketball. She covers beach volleyball. She covers women's basketball, big on the WNBA. And of course, she covers. College football.
1: Yeah, I'm always interested to people that number one have to jump between sports so quickly. Like, so she may have a common week where she actually has to cover four or five different sports in the same week. I'm always interested to how does it, does it, like, do you have to flip a switch and kind of, you know, flush your knowledge? Like, forget I was just at the national championship football game. Tomorrow I'm covering volleyball. Like, you know, and also, you know, I always think about studying, you know, how. Can you pre- prep in advance? Like, how far in advance does she have to have to actually prep? So I, I've got lots of questions.
0: Well, we got her back, so now you can ask those questions. Holly, good morning to you.
5: Good morning. Sorry about that, guys. No, Sorry.
0: not at all. We, we, we know you're busy. you <laughs> would be fine. If you got to go do something, just let us know. Where are you calling in from this morning?
5: I am in St. Petersburg, Florida right now. That- I've come to the sunshine. I was I've had it with the cold. I've fled to the sunshine.
0: Well, tell us what your week looks like because we know you're going to be covering the game You know, in just five days or so. How early will you get into New Orleans to, to get in on the football?
5: Well, I am actually going from here today because I have a big game tomorrow, uh, Baylor versus UConn women's basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, so the defending national champs versus the number one team in the nation. Mm-hmm. So that is a huge game we have tomorrow night in Connecticut. And then from there, I will take a train home to New York City drop my luggage, get a new suitcase, and then I will head to New Orleans that evening to be there in time for media day for the national championship game.
0: So Eric was just musing about how you keep track of all the different sports that you're covering. I mean, you know, we have guys on here that cover college football, and that's all they cover all year round. So, of course, they can keep on top of it. How are you such an expert on college football, and yet you're also covering women's basketball, WNBA, beach volleyball, whatever, I mean, you've got a wide range. (laughs)
5: it's interesting. I had a week, uh, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks ago, where I did four different sports in five days. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm I'm amazed my brain hasn't melted right now. Mm
4: -mm, But mm -mm. it's
5: very, you know, you talk about compartmentalization, and I think I'm able to compartmentalize my mind of like, okay, here's all my volleyball information, and that doesn't bleed over into any other sport. You know, you just can kind of keep it separate. Obviously, I wish I had more time in the day, because You know, we're busy breaking down. This is the longest break we've ever had between the college football playoffs and the national championship game. And so that was sort of good in a way because I was able to just go for, you know, four days, five days without thinking about the football stuff. Oh, interesting. And then just dig in and get those two teams prepped.
1: Okay. So Holly, this is Eric Bradlow. Do you ever do what we try to do in the classroom as professors all the time? Like if you're covering, as you said, the Baylor-UConn game, but you've prepped something for LSU-Clemson, will you bring in some other sport and say, you know, the listeners, well, I don't want to call put up with it because I would find it fascinating, but I'm a statistician, so I might be in the minority. Do you do cross sports analogies a lot? And is that valuable for you as a broadcaster?
5: So I think all of it is sport. And I think where that comes in more sometimes is with injury information. So, for example, I would have learned um, through my volleyball about a shoulder subluxation or an AC joint sprain. So then I know when I come back and I do a football game, I've, I've delved into it from how a volleyball player heals, does rehab, all that stuff. So I could bring more information to to a shoulder injury like DeAndre Swift had in the sugar bowl. And so mm-hmm. we thought he would be able to play because his AC joint brain had happened XYZ. You know, so I, I think I'm learning more about the human body and how different sports treat different mm-hmm. things. Um, that That's one way. And I think just the more you dig into... To to stat body movement, I, I just think you become more efficient and your brain is working on lots
0: of different levels. Holly, one practical question about doing it the way you're doing it. Everybody doesn't cover all the sports that you do. You've got some discretion. You've made a choice. I mean, ESPN might want you to do lots of things, but you, you, know, you have to navigate that with those guys. But you've made a choice to do this. Can you tell us about how you're deciding what's in your portfolio?
5: Yeah, I think one of the things I'm maybe the most proud of in my career is so... When I was coming up, you got more opportunities in women's sports because everyone wants to do the men's sports. You know, everyone grows up and wants to do college football or NFL football. And no one is lining up to do women's soccer or women's volleyball. And so I got a lot of opportunities early in my career to do women's sports. And I love it. Like, I think I'm probably a frustrated athlete at heart. And Mm -hmm. I I watch these women with awe and appreciation. And I've seen a lot of people in my business. They start out on the women's sports side, and then as soon as they – so-called hit it big or get better assignments, they just drop the women's sports.
4: Mm-hmm. And
5: I, it just offended me. And it just was like, I, I think that is such a disservice. We need good people on these women's sports. And so I've never given them up, and I never will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm too busy doing a lot of other things, and I make room for it. So, for example, I'm, I just got added, I'm doing the new Saturday Night Prime Games now with Jay Billis and Dan Schulman on Saturdays. Men's basketball this season, mm-hmm. but I already have this really big women's package for our best games of the year on Thursday nights. So I, was, I had to make a decision. You know, do I stay on all of those? That means I have three basketball games a week. All right. And my decision, of course, is yes, because that that showcase and these women are every bit as important to me. Um, because of my level of appreciation for what they're accomplishing.
0: Mm-hmm. Holly, we're going to talk in a minute about college football, and, we, and we're and we seeing a, a real institution in Clemson maybe, maybe beginning to eclipse another institution in Alabama, and you've got some inside views on how that happens. But covering women's basketball, you've got some other major institutions. So in your experience there, what is it that's kept somebody like UConn dominant as long as they've been dominant and then what is a program like how does a where's a program like Baylor come from how does it happen that somebody does manage to rival somebody like UConn
5: I think it's interesting it's the individual coaches I think that go to those schools and then get the support they need to grow something and and it takes a force of personality and I believe that if you look at I'm going to give you four programs we can kind of compare the different coaching personalities so Nick Saban Dabo Sweeney who've been on top of the mountain for a long, long time, and then Gino Oriyama and Kim Mulkey. The, the one thing those four people have in common is they are the most competitive people you've ever met. Mm. They hate to lose, they want to win, and they have been big winners in their life. Mm-hmm. The other the other combination, I think, of characteristics that makes them unique is they are demanding coaches. Mm. Everybody gets this impression that Dabo Sweeney is some happy go lucky right. yada, yada, yada. And he is, to some extent. And then you see him turn it into discipline. I mean, they have, they have leadership councils. They have a leadership council within the leadership council. They have um, teams that they break into that are called accountability teams. And you get to draft your team of who are the players you think are accountable. And I talked to one kid this year and he said, I have started drafting some of the kids who are not accountable on our team. Because I've decided I can help make them more accountable, and that makes us better as a football team. And this is stuff from checking classes. What did you get your assignments in on time? Were you at meal on time? Did you do this work on time? And so when you have the kids making each other more accountable, you're going to have a better program. Mm -hmm. So Dabo Sweeney is just one of the most – he is every bit as dominant and demanding as Nick Saban is. Hmm. And, and same thing with Kim Moki. She will get on your you-know-what and yell in your face <laughs> how you get stuff done. She is a hard-of-woman if you've ever seen in your life yelling, demanding, let's go, because she's done it as a player. She won a national championship at Louisiana, Los, or at Louisiana Tech. She won a gold medal. You know she Every, every level she has been on, she wins. Mm-hmm. And she demands it. And mm-hmm. so I think that's what these teams and programs have in common.
0: So Holly, does that mean that other schools have a chance? We don't have to just kind of give up that the world is going to be Clemson, Alabama. So, for example, you know, you're from Utah. You grew up on BYU football. And I was thinking about this morning that it must be a little painful. For a long time, Clemson had one national championship, 1981. And for, for, for still, BYU has won national championship, 1984. But somehow, 35 years later... Those guys get it really going, and BYU doesn't have it going. So you've lived it to some extent. There are schools all over the country who are like, man, how can, how can Dabo drop in there and recreate this thing out of seemingly thin air? You're saying the right coach can do it.
5: Yeah, but you, you have to have the pieces in place. So, for example, at Clemson, we went there, I would say, let's see, maybe six years ago, and they didn't have even an indoor practice facility. So that was the, the first step. They built an indoor practice facility. And then they got to a national championship. And, you know, every step you make it further, you get more money in the, in the old playoff system. And so then they would come back, and they have raised enough money to build what I would deem the Taj Mahal of college football complexes. And so people have bought into him, and that has led to resources and buildings. Mm-hmm. They have an entire sports science wing where kids can come in after practice and go through laser treatments, um, the, the, um, Oh, what do you call them? The chambers that are freezing cold. That barometric,
1: you're in. the cry,
5: the yeah. cryogenic, yeah. and
2: barometric chambers.
5: Biometric chamber yes. of
2: questionable they, value. <laughs> I'll point out.
5: Yes, people people are saying that. However, I've been in one and I got out and I felt better. So whatever. That <laughs> yeah, is. okay. Placebo effect um, is the most
2: powerful effect known to medicine. Yes. Exactly.
5: Uh, <laughs> but they have these massage chairs. They have infrared lights that can go up and down your body and help reduce swelling and soreness and. And so he has invested in this science program right there in their facility. So it took a dominant personality. It took um, people getting behind him and giving him the resources to win. And then I also think a geographic footprint is a big piece of Mm -hmm. it because he's in in Clemson, South Carolina. It is a very remote rural area. However, it's two and a half hours from Atlanta Mm -hmm. where a ton of college football players it's close to Florida, you know their star running back Travis Etienne, is out of Louisiana, so they are able to regionally recruit and so I think those maybe are the, the pieces you look at Alabama can regionally recruit you know their players come I would say eighty percent of their players come from four hours around Alabama mm-hmm.
0: um,
5: so with, with uh, Baylor yeah yeah
0: was well, exactly I was about to ask this question so Matt rule very much in the news right now just landed a huge contract in Carolina bumping from college to the to pros he was only down in waco for three years i think he came out of temple here he was a hot prospect went to baylor did people wondered whether a guy from up here without connections in the big 12 without con- recruiting experience in texas could do it he did it in a big way and so two questions that seems to be proof of concept and baylor's relatively well situated because it's in texas but it's surrounded by a&m and lsu and oklahoma and somehow they did it so that's encouraging for other schools. But what in, you're a Big Twelve person. What in your experience do you think makes Matt Rule so special?
5: Number one, he is a special person. You sit down in a room and talk to him, and I promise you, you fall in love. You, you're just like this guy gets it. This guy is so real, and he's so honest. And you just walk out of there feeling like you really know him, and that you would go to you would go to bat for him.
4: Hmm.
5: Number two, he he. Think, I think he had been to Texas once in his career other than taking that job at Baylor. So you think okay. he a guy from the Northeast with that accent that talks a mile a minute. Yeah. How does he become relatable to these Texas high school football coaches? Because you have to be in with those high school football coaches. right? Guess what he does? He hires to be on his staff, the president of the high school football association.
4: Mm. Okay. And so
5: he goes on <laughs> his very first recruiting visit. He goes to a kid's house named James Lynch, And if you guys want to look up his stats and analytics, this kid has had a monster season, Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. And the way he recruits James Lynch is he's got the guy that's tied in with Texas high school football and and goes to Austin and recruits James Lynch right out of Austin Mm
4: -hmm. with this
5: connection. And I'm like, that is really genius. Mm -hmm. Like, think about that. You know that you don't have those in, but this guy does. So I'm going to hire this guy.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So He's it,
5: smart, engaging—you'll love him.
0: <laughs> well, he, I'm I'm a Longhorn Rose. I'm glad to see him leave. I'm I'm f- perfectly happy for him to move to the NFL. He's done wonders at Baylor, and Baylor's painful whenever they're this good.
1: Yeah, Holly, I was going to ask you this, Eric Brado. Do you see as an as an announcer, are dynasties good for sports? Do you think when I say good, like for example, I was just looking at the women's college rankings. I noticed the Ivy League's in there. Princeton's number twenty-five. Um, so how? Is it, uh, like, for example, we were just talking about the NBA, college football, NFL. It seems like there's really only six or eight teams that can really win it. Is it that way in college basketball? right? If I told you Princeton is the national champion, is would that be like a 0% chance of thing? And if not, are dynasties good for women's sports or sports in general?
5: I personally think dynasties are good. I think that. You you get more interest and more intrigue when you have a dynasty overall because UConn women's basketball. I've traveled around the country with them, gone to different games, and they're like the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's like the Beatles rolling into a hotel. Mm-hmm. People want to take pictures. They are a team that gets like pro level um, interest and support everywhere they go because people are buying tickets in San Jose or Dallas or Lubbock to come and see UConn women in action because they're a dynasty and the other thing i believe is that when they lose some of the highest ratings we've ever had in the last five years at the women's final four are when yukon got beat because that was the story right someone finally knocked off the evil empire right mm-hmm. and i think that we saw that sunday with the patriots the patriots finally going down
4: mm-hmm. in, a,
5: in a wild card round i think that generates as much or more interest as the Patriots continuing to win.
4: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it gives
5: you foils. You know, you think about men's tennis. Have we cared about men's tennis as much as we used to when it was Jimmy Connors and, and McEnroe and those those guys that were so dominant were going to knock each other off? You know, thank goodness we've had Federer lately. Um, I'm blanking on the the really good guys from uh, Croatia. In my head. Djokovic. Yes, yeah, Djokovic.
0: <laughs> we found a hole in your sports game, Holly. Wow. Yeah,
5: sorry. I, I do know his game. I, I was in a pub somewhere in um, Switzerland and I ran across this group of men huddled around a TV watching tennis. And I, I laughed and I said to them, Why are you watching tennis? And they said, We're all from, we're all from Croatia or uh, Serbia, wherever he's from. And so they were following his career closely. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it matters when you have people who sustain success. Cause I don't think we follow it as well when every year it's someone new. Why, why do you think we love Tiger? Right. Why are people well, well, watching more with
2: Tiger? We love extreme events and extreme individual performances are and, are attractive and entertaining. That's and, interesting, yeah. because
0: then whenever the extreme becomes normal, you know, the Pats win too many Super Bowls or Alabama and, makes too yeah. many championship games. Then it becomes less interesting. Mm-hmm. It's one of the nice things about this year's championship game is that we've got Clemson, who's been in a bunch of them lately, but then we have a newcomer finally and not a newcomer that's going to get smoked, a newcomer that I can actually stand seemingly with, things. But I
2: think we also will hate organizations more than individuals because individuals, they get to reap their own re- re- reward. And the Clemson or the dy- dynasty of a team, we sort of blame it on the whole system. Someone has
0: a paper. Someone has a site yeah. paper recently on exactly that. So we're talking to Holly Rowe. Holly is longtime ESPN reporter. She's been there 20 years. She's one of the lead reporters on ESPN Saturday Night Primetime College Football. She also covers Big Monday men's college basketball, women's final four, women's college World Series at softball. Beach Volleyball she covers a lot of sports but she's going to be heading to New Orleans here in just a couple of days and we want to hear your take on the game Holly when you go yes. tell us as you know you know a lot about these programs you've been paying attention to them for a long time you've been paying attention to this particular year you know so you've got a lot of detail when you go into New Orleans what are you going to be looking for what are you most curious about when you land
5: Well the number one thing in my mind is the running back for LSU Clyde edwards Elaire he didn't play much in their semifinal game, he had two crucial plays on a little throwback to the quarterback that he put on a monster block and they scored on. And then he had one good run that got a first down, but he is nursing a, a hamstring injury. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they can win unless he is 100%. He has oh, wow. to be dangerous. So to me, that is a big situation. Clemson's pretty healthy. I don't think Clemson has any questionable guys. Um, I do know that their are um, one of their good wide receivers took a hard hit and But he's now had two weeks, so I'm assuming everybody will be healthy. But Clyde Edwards-Elair is the running back for LSU, and why he is so important is he has over 1,300 yards rushing this season. He is a monster. He's a little bowling ball kind of running back Mm -hmm. that gets tough yards. But he also has 50 receptions, 50, 5-0. He is third on the team in receptions. And so he has become a mismatch problem for linebackers mm-hmm. and they have thrown to him late in this, in this season. I think most of his catches have come in the last four or five games of the season and it's a matchup issue. So Joe Burrow has this hot release in the middle of the field that's going against the linebacker and his shiftiness wins every time.
4: Mm-hmm. And
5: so that has become a big part of their game plan, these crossing routes and underneath routes with quite Clyde Edwards, elaire And so, They've got to have all of that in their arsenal to
0: beat Clemson. With their stacked roster, they don't have someone coming in behind him that can, if not be exactly him, pick up some of the slack?
5: Yes, at running back. They have three great running backs behind him. Mm -hmm. They're all freshmen, sophomore or freshmen. And, and none of them have more than ten receptions. Okay. So it's the combination of the running and the catching. Okay. You know, is that he is so versatile? They do not have a piece that is that versatile. I, I haven't seen a running back, a true running back, with thirteen hundred yards. Have fifty receptions since I
0: think Christian McCaffrey. Wow, that's a, that's some serious that's some serious comparison, uh, yeah. Holly. The Burrow. Everyone's talking about Burrow. You, you very much burst on the scene. Being a Longhorn, I know that people weren't talking about him this way early in the season. Kind of, kind of the game in week two against Texas is in some way is coming out party. He also is playing in one of the most dynamic systems in the country, and with an extremely stacked roster. How do you separate? evaluating him as a guy, as a player, as a quarterback, versus the system and the people that he's surrounded by. And as the NFL starts thinking about whether they want to draft him, number one, he seems to be a consensus, number one. How do you do that? And again, I thought your BYU experience might be interesting, having grown up watching those phenomenal BYU offenses and they produce one quarterback after another. At some point, it's like, how much of it's the quarterback? How much of it's the system? Do we have one of those questions here with Barrow? And what's your position on it?
5: Not not even close. And here's why. The system is not different enough. The, the, the two things they have implemented into this system, and you guys can watch this on Saturday, I have found this to be fascinating, is they have gone to purely a five-man protection. And what what that means is they only have five offensive linemen protecting Joe Burrow. They don't keep a tight end in there all the time. They don't keep running backs in there to chip all the time or a fullback because they want five athletes downfield in routes.
4: Mm-hmm. So
5: You watch this. How do you cover five different routes as a defense, because that means you have to have five DBs. You have to play nickel defense and you don't have an extra guy to put in the box to stop the run. Mm -hmm. So either we're going to run it down your throat or we're going to have five guys out and he can get those targets. So, so number one, I think the system is simple and it's not making Joe Burrow who he is. Joe Burrow is making this system what it is because he is an elite processor. LSU has this system where they neurologically test guys. It's a, a device they put on their heads hmm. and their eyes where they put film up and then they test how the guys are processing information on a football field. Mm-hmm. And Joe Burrow is one of the highest on the team at processing, and it seems like his ability to avoid distraction is his its his picture clouded downfield. It's not. He's, he's locked in on his route. Mm-hmm. He's able to see who's open when, where the defender's going to be, I believe the next level processing of Joe Burrow is
0: what made him unique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's remarkable. We need, to, we need to find out more about that that technology.
1: Uh, Holly, this is Eric Bradley again. The one thing that maybe surprises me about the line on the game isn't so much that LSU is favored by six, but if I've got this correct, the over-under is 70. Now, the only reason that's shocking me a little bit is that we saw four pro games this weekend where I'm pretty sure all of them were the under. Is there any cha- w- went under? Is there any chance that this is a low scoring game and these two teams have good defenses and like doesn't the over under of 70 surprise you a little bit too?
5: <laughs> okay, this is going to sound bad, but I actually think it surprises me because it's too low. I'm I with mean, you, it's Holly. You high scoring
0: team. <laughs> totally, I'm with you. Surprisingly low. I agree entirely. Surprisingly low. How yeah. frequently do we get a 70? Well, what, what was game? LSU? What's the what, base rate? What was LSU Alabama? That was 80 plus, wasn't it?
5: Oh yeah. That was that was a crazy game. I mean, that was the most that's ever been scored in that series. Um, I do think both teams have good defenses, but I think both teams have NFL pro-caliber quarterbacks. Trevor Lawrence, you, you guys remember this? In five years, six years, Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrow are going to be the new. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning. Mm-hmm. I promise you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a that.
2: pretty good promise. I actually <laughs> was doing some some backtracking in Trevor Lawrence. He was the highest rated high school athlete in like the last five years. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, and he can't come out this year because he's just a true sophomore. Yep. But when you see his body, he is built exactly like Peyton Manning. Where's ha- number 16? He grew up watching Peyton Manning. Hmm. He has a better arm and is a better athlete.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: and Peyton you know you saw him have a key run in that Ohio State
0: game who knew he, he really could run like that his legs it was absurd yeah. it was fantastic so yeah. you 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 just referred to seeing his body you see lots of insights about teams and you, you do these road trips with Maria Taylor which is a really cool feature that you created on bootstrap two summers ago you did it again this, this year two years ago or some year summer before last you said on that road trip when you saw Clemson Justin Ross jumped out to you. He had just been on yes. campus, a true freshman receiver. He jumped out to you. You did a little thing on him. And then in the championship game against Alabama, he had a breakout game, and you were proud of having identified that back in August. I'm curious if anything this year played out similarly. Did you see anything in those in that road trip with Maria that, that seemed to bear out over the course of the season?
5: Yes, this pains me to say it because um, it will make my Alabama friends angry. But, you know, we go to seven different camps along the way, and so you are able to really compare with your eye test a team, uh, teams against each other. Mm-hmm. So we went from Alabama to Ohio State,
4: mm-hmm.
5: it, back-to-back days. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said to Maria, Ohio State is better. Really? So Ohio State is better, and they are the best team that we have seen in the last three or four days. Alabama just looked sluggish to me. They looked like they were going through the motions. Now, this is one practice. Right. You know, so I felt kind of bad in my mind, like, oh, Holly, don't be so critical. But I just, something just wasn't there. And I just think this was an Alabama team that, I don't know if the winning weighs on you or you just expect to win. And I just didn't think they Mm -hmm. had the pep and the the feel to them this year. Mm -hmm. And then they had some injury issues. But we went to, when we got to Ohio State, we were like, Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so everyone that would listen to me, I told them Ohio State's going to be really, really good. Mm-hmm. And and they were, you know, one play away from being in the national championship game.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Holly, could you tell us, since we're an analytics show and sports show, obviously, here, Wharton Moneyball, uh, could you tell us how analytics has changed? Your career, like, do you have to? Are you given a lot more advanced stats than you used to? Do you use them more on air? So whether it's on the, let's call it the training side, the preparation side for the game, or the on air side, or maybe even the post mortem side, where has analytics most affected you?
5: That's a wonderful question because I think, in in one sense, it has been the backbone of my career because the way I fill out my game board every week is you know you get these game notes from the sports information people, and I ignore them, and I go straight to the stats page. Mm-hmm. And I will build my whole game board based on what have they done. And it's simple stuff like how good are they on third down. every day, Every game I write on my chart the third down information, how many times have they gone it on fourth down. What is their red zone touchdown percentage? Like there are so many little nuggets in the stats that you can glean out that will help you understand how this game will go. They can't score in the red zone. How are they going to score in the red zone against the number one defense in the SEC? Mm
4: -hmm.
5: You know, little things like that. So I think um, that's that's where I get the information about Clyde Edwards Elair. Like I'm putting his running back numbers in there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this kid's over a thousand yards this season. And then I'm like, but 50 receptions on a team with all the whiteouts that LSU has, he's number three. Mm -hmm. So that's another. So I think that stats and the analytic part of that has been the backbone of how I build my stuff. But now I think we have more people helping. So um, there's a group called Pro Football Focus that puts out some good stats. Like mm-hmm. in coverage, this guy's been targeted this many times. I think those are good little snapshots of ways to tell stories. Uh, mm-hmm. People have stopped throwing at this kid because he's so good as a defensive back. Um, this is a good one for you guys. There is a, a true freshman defensive back for LSU, Derek Stingley Jr., who a lot of people think is the best corner in the in the game right now, wow. and he has been targeted a lot. And that was because he has kind of a lockdown guy next to him, Grant Delpit. So people aren't throwing to him. People really targeted Derek Stingley early mm-hmm. in the season, and now they've stopped because he's proven himself.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That change the change in targets over the season as people learn. That's an interesting stat, right? Right, Holly. Let me ask the complimentary question to Eric's: How can we be better? The analytics community. How can we improve what we provide? People like you, analysts, commentators, radio and TV people. How can we improve our offering? I think
5: the context of it would be important. So, I'm trying to think of a good stat that would bear this out. Um, okay, so, so uh, statistically, Oklahoma's offensive line is much worse this year you could pull up a whole bunch of analytics that talk about how much worse Oklahoma's offensive line is this year. Um, we, uh, a lot of people crush Jalen hurts for not being better and not being as good as Kyler Murray was throwing the ball, or he could have been better. He held the ball too long, blah, blah, blah. And I think the context to the Jalen hurts stats are that he didn't have the same offensive line. Kyler Murray did.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right.
5: So people are comparing apples to apples, Jalen and Kyler, but they're not comparing the oranges that were the offensive line, and the offensive line for Oklahoma last year has four guys playing in the NFL this year. Right. right. Tyler's offensive line has four NFL guys. This year has one. So, you know, those are the little context things that I think are important for people to put that piece together. Because mm-hmm. it's unfair if we crush Jalen on certain things, knowing he wasn't protected. Mm-hmm. He didn't have that same
0: opportunity. It's a great, it's a great message. It's a, it's, it is, it is tough to keep that in perspective, and it should be one of the things. It should be one of the things we do best is provide that kind of context. And so often we do, we do drop the ball. Listen, Holly, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Enjoy the the UConn Baylor game you have in front of you, and then good luck with New Orleans. We know you're call you're calling the game, right? You're on ESPN Radio Monday. Of course, there's a game, 8 p.m. You're going to be calling it with Sean McDonough, Todd Blackledge, and Ian Fitzsimmons. This is your sixth year, is that right, calling it?
5: Yes, yes. Great. Thank you. Yes, I'm excited.
0: Well, we're excited, too. We wish you the best with your trips in the next few days and with the game down there in New Orleans. Holly Rowe.
5: Thank you. I've been, I have really enjoyed being on. Call me again. I did not know about your show, and I'm going to be listening now. Thank you. Wonderful, Holly. You've, you've converted me.
0: <laughs> 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 Wonderful. Holly Rowe, ESPN 20-year reporter. She is in Florida at the moment getting a little sunshine, but she'll be in New Orleans soon with the big Clemson-LSU game coming up. All right. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball.
2: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
3: on Business Radio. Welcome
0: back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Dion Simpkins bringing us up out of the hour on the soundboard, associate producer Dion Simpkins. Cade Massey hosting here with my co-host, longtime collaborators and buddies. Audie Weiner. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen's out and about. He will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here, too. Give us a shout. One eight four four wharton That's one 942 7866 Email us, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball is our handle, at WMoneyball. Just off the phone with Holly Rowe. How much fun was that? She's such a star.
1: I was loving the fact that she was covering all the different sports. Um, I liked I really loved her story about not leaving women's sports and I'll be honest with you, I'm now like she just said she's now converted to listening to Wharton Moneyball. I wasn't going to, but now that I think about it, I'm watching that Baylor-Yukon game. That's a big, I'm, one. That's a big game. I'm definitely going to watch that game now that she's uh, she's doing.
0: That's great. It's impressive that she can cover as much as she does, and she stays as deep and passionate about college football as she does, despite having all this else in her portfolio. Anything that jumped out of that conversation about that game? We need to talk about it a little yeah. bit more. With yes. the Baylor-Yukon game? I, mean, I don't even know where No, no, no Clemson. No, oh, Clemson.
1: Yeah, I, that the two of you keep thinking that 70 is way low. That's the part that I'm, you know, I'm just thinking about so maybe this will impress Audi, like he was impressed when I asked how long could somebody run at the pace that it would take to do a marathon. You like the way I framed it. So how many points – I mean, a team's going – you're going to need 18 points a quarter to get – if it's linear, to get to 72, just get to 70 points. So that means each team has to score more than a touchdown in a quarter. I'm thinking – It's if these not te- that much, No. Well, if teams run the football, if teams run the football...
2: But these are both passing teams. I don't know that uh, much about...
1: Come on, Burrow and Lawrence, these are... They both have great running backs. I just... It just seems to me... So, this way, maybe I'm stung a little bit because every NFL game went the under this week, and maybe Mm -hmm. I didn't have the under in all of my picks this week, but maybe this is a game that's going to be the under. I, I just think in, seventy in, seems in like a massive number. It
2: does so seem what, like a what, massive what number. What
0: about what let's talk about the spread as well? The spread is five six, six
1: is what it says here. LSU favored by six.
0: That seems too high. How did it get up to six?
1: Well, I don't know, but just this thanks to Matt Dots, our producer, according to five thirty eight, Clemson's the favorite, well, and the betting line has LSU as the favorite.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. There's a couple. So wh- there, why,
1: why would that be?
0: There are a couple things that come up. One, I'm sure five thirty eight has them as a neutral field. And so an interesting question here is what kind of home-field advantage LSU will have playing in New Orleans so close to Baton Rouge. It's an, it's an open question. Presumably they'll have some, but presumably not a full dose as they would if they well, were playing we, in let's Baton
2: Rouge. Go, oh, let's let's uh, think about for a minute and recapitulate what drives the home-field advantage. And if they, what drives it at least is in some piece not having to travel. What does that mean for the distance here? Uh, well, that's about we, an hour. I mean, yeah, but you're not home. It's and the, the not idea a big travel
1: and they it's, both have lots of days. Let's assume yeah. that's not going to be a big factor. Right. Then there's well, the size imagine, of the crowd. Well, I would it. imagine they give the same number of student tickets, right. at least to Clemson and LSU. They both get the same number mm-hmm. of seats. But then there's the other 50,000 no, people. It has there.
0: To, well, it's, it, it, it won't be as dominant as a game in Baton Rouge, but it's definitely going to be pro LSU crowd. There's, it can't be any other way being in New Orleans. Now, how much difference that makes. You know our friends who sh- did you know uh, scorecasting back in the day said that it was about referees and referees being under the influence of the crowd. And if that's truly what it is, then the crowd may still favor LSU.
1: But this appears to be. I mean, let's assume what, what we have here is, Ellis, uh, Clemson 53%, LSU Clemson fifty three percent LSU forty seven percent. Let's assume that's
0: a whatever. We're talking about five thirty eight. Five thirty eight. So by by the way, so, yeah, by sir. the way, they they their numbers are underlying as FPI. So ESPN's FPI is in is in those numbers. So. Again, it's a quantitative system. They're going to have they're going to have teams as playing on a neutral
1: field. What does Massey Peabody have if the game were played? What does Massey Peabody have for uh, LSU and Clemson? We
0: think they're the two best teams in the country, which is nice. But we make LSU about a one point favorite on a neutral field. Now, so I think you got to give both I think of you, those
2: are playable.
0: You have to give advantages. LSU a little bit of a bump. I think. I think it, maybe it's a one point bump or a point and a half or something like that. The other thing that comes up when we look at our numbers is. How much do you think priors matter at this mm-hmm. point of the season? And you know, we, we we include our priors as long as they provide predictive help. And so priors in but the wouldn't Masi- that
1: lead towards Clemson?
0: You know, it does this is exactly. So, if so you, wouldn't that
1: make it even a bigger
0: if, opportunity? No, that's where
1: that's where I think he gets them cl-
2: closed because of that prior.
0: So this is what I'm saying. So if we if we didn't have priors in here we would have lsu even a bigger favorite mm-hmm. because oh, one lsu kind of came out they, you know they're always they've been for years like a number 9 number 10 kind of team number 6 number 7 they haven't been at the very top that has been a big move for them this year but also ohio state is the only program out there that competes that recruits as well as Alabama. They're like Alabama, Georgia-worthy recruiter, and so they're stacked, and that really influences priors. So if we didn't have priors, we would look much more like the betting market. So the fact that we are still, in some sense, holding LSU back because our expectations were a little bit lower coming into the season hurts our ability to separate them, So, but just raises this philosophical question. I mean, the priors are there for a reason, but some people – I find it kind of uncomfortable for the pri- priors to still matter 14 games into the season.
1: Given Clemson beat Ohio State, which we all agree were they were in the Big Three, the Clemson Ohio State was a great team this year. Is all of your, whether it's Massey Peabody or your personal, is all of your personal uncertainty about Clemson gone? Remember, going into that game, people were like, they haven't played anybody, that we don't know if they've beaten anybody good. Well, now we know they've beaten somebody good. How much of the uncertainty, it was close, but you beat a good team very close. I'm just questioning, how much of the uncertainty do you think is gone now about whether it's in the narrative or actually in the math, how much uncertainty is now gone about Clemson's true strength?
2: Nothing. I'm, 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 I claim that you learn nothing from that last game. That's well, my claim. Y- y- in what sense, Adi? Like what? Because that they, they performed exactly as expected. as expected.
0: So we don't. We're not modeling explicitly variance in our model. So for better or worse, it's not. So yeah, I, I didn't ask I if continue. the mean
1: has changed. I asked if the uncertainty has changed. He,
0: he, I, Eric, I think is talking more a little bit more intuitively because because Clemson was so kind of on the sidelines in terms of uh-huh. the national conversation. They mm-hmm. played in the weakest of the Power Five conferences this year. They, I think they're, they didn't have a game that was closer than 20 points or something. They right had there. one
1: game. One game against maybe North Carolina early what, on so, in the season.
0: So what we have learned over time, and I mean the analytics community, is that y- A good model can still pull out the quality of the team despite the competition because you do sufficiently well against weak competition and you get a strong signal still. So we weren't that surprised by it. But I do think the intuition is, look, we don't really know. They haven't played anybody. Maybe psychologically it's tougher. What happens when someone really hits them in the mouth? And so there is this question. It's a reasonable question to ask, okay – did that get resolved since they played Ohio State? And I think the answer my answer would be yes, but one of the reasons is because it's not like Clemson is like North Carolina State. I mean Clemson has been Clemson for four or five years now. They're the national champs. They are the national champs. The quarterback who's losing there was the same. And he's older. Was. So there was, I think there probably wasn't as much uncertainty as there might have been with teams in similar situations because we've got some history on them. But it's a very fair question. Rarely have we had a team walk into the national semifinal or a national final, having played so little competition over the course of the season.
2: Well, I would like to reiterate, what I think is, is a, this is a good bet, in my view. I you think like, that, I like priors, and I like them a lot in this so you particular like Clemson. case. You like Clemson. so I like Clemson and I particularly you like, you them like Clemson have, plus
1: six. I mean, yeah. I like
2: I would like Clemson if it were even, and I like Clemson <laughs> even better plus six. This yeah. is a big, big advantage. It's almost what we had last year. <laughs> last year was Alabama was very heavily favored, and the model said that Alabama should be slightly favored.
1: Yeah. And we took took it,
2: uh, and and I think this year the models say that Clemson should be slightly favored, and they're very heavily underdog.
0: Well, our our model doesn't say Clemson should be, but the line we
2: don't. I'm not you're not laying the odds,
0: (laughs) Vegas is. Well, I'll take our odds against Vegas' odds for for college football. I'm very confident in our in our our numbers. Of course, anything could happen, and these two teams are they're both very good, and anything could happen. But if I had to pick a line, I would say, oh, you buy two or so.
2: But if I have a rule which says which I don't always follow, but if I'm going to make a bet only make a bet where the statistics are clearly out of lo- out of whack with what the what the odds are yeah. in the public market this is that one or two time a year so, opportunity so, and i think this is it
0: well it's it happens more often than that but it and but usually by this time of year the numbers are you don't see big edges late in the season
2: well okay it happens more than frequent that more often than that but not in the big, big, high-profile games. Aren't that Many of those. Is there
1: any value in it, or it's just no value at this point about, you know, Dabo Sweeney's won the national championship multiple times. Uh, Lawrence has been in the national championship game. Is that worth anything over LSU at this point? I,
0: I would think so, yeah. I mean, they've been... I mean, it's not just that they won last year. This program's been there for years, and LSU hasn't been. That said, LSU, from what we've seen this year, is extremely confident, and Burrow man, for a guy who hasn't been there before, that guy plays confidently. So generally I would say yes, but it's not clear that LSU is going to be cowed like that.
1: I think it's just wonderful that you, I think you've said it, actually Holly said it as well. Um, we may be seeing you know the next coming of Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. I'm just saying we're seeing in your mind yeah. two of the best quarterbacks maybe since Andrew Luck, and we're getting to see them play against each other in a big high stakes game. That's
0: right. They're probably the number one pick this year and next year, and not just the number one pick in the way that you know you know Winston or Win- Mariotto. I say it was like this is Andrew Luck level number one picks. Like Adia says, mm-hmm. adia has got these recruiting calculations. He comes up with his own number, and he finds that Lawrence is one of the highest.
2: Lawrence was the highest ranked player in high school before he took a single snap.
0: Right, but that, but someone's gonna be. But you yes. find no, his, no, his no. number there. His it, number there is higher than anybody for a uh, long th- time.
2: I think the the highest. I mean, yeah, not even close. I mean, six or seven years ago, I think it was Jadeveon Clowney. J. Davey Clowney, yeah, he was the only one of that that level that we've seen. Interesting. In the news this week. In the news this week. So let's talk
0: a little before we talk about. Back to NFL playoffs. Let's talk about some other sport. Is other anything else going on? NBA. Eric, have you been? hold well, me up. What's happening? Well, What's happening to our, no, to our to our uh, Sixers? Thing.
1: Well, forget the Sixers <laughs> just for a second. We're still back. I, I've wanted to. I've been waiting to see when this might stop happening. But now we're roughly thirty-five games into the season. It's all and, exhibition, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> here's what the exhibition has. We have twelve teams that are projecting above fifty wins we have 10 teams projected below 30 wins and only kind of eight teams between 30 and 50. So we're still at this situation in the NBA where if we look at the distribution, it's like the shape of a U. Maybe you could say it's uniform, but it isn't a bell-shaped curve. There aren't a bunch of teams like between 30 and 50 wins, and then there's these tails that fall off. There's more teams in the tails than there are in the middle. And to me, I I just don't ever remember seeing that. It's a a comment not about an individual team, about the aggregate distribution. There are some really good teams, really bad teams, and and not that many teams that are just like, well, we're kind of mediocre. So how
2: confident are you in the top eight teams? In the entire league,
0: knowing which are the top eight,
2: like do we do we really really need the rest of the season to figure out?
1: <laughs> I think let, let's say the following. Um, I think not that confident. Well, it depends what you mean if the top eight. If we're talking about by the records right now, let's take top four teams in the East. Am I confident that the uh, Bucks, Celtics, the finalists yeah. from the East will be the Bucks, Celtics, Heat, or Raptors? Now, of course, that would leave out the Sixers. Right. If you added on the Sixers, I would say. Point nine that the or higher that, that the Eastern, Eastern finalist will be one of those, those five th- teams. Matter of fact, you can even, far as far as I'm concerned, two. you can remove the Heat. Yeah. I just don't think the Heat are that good. I think they've been playing extraordinarily well. So that's the well.
0: same top four we had last year, right? If you if you that is correct, the, okay,
1: that is correct. If you look out west, you know. The Lakers look good. I would say it's Lakers. I don't I don't put much stock in the Nuggets, the Rockets, I don't know, Clippers. Maybe those. I think there's more uncertainty in the West. I could see Utah, Dallas under This gets back to our Witch versus any of those top four teams, I think, in the West could be upset. Now, that doesn't mean that Dallas can win three series to get to the NBA Finals. But I have less certainty. I think the East is actually more... There's more concentration in the East than there is in the West.
0: What what chances would you give the Bucks right now? How serious are the Bucks as championship contenders? I,
1: I think the Bucks are very, very serious. They believe, actually, they should have won it last year. They were really close with Toronto last year. I saw, I've saw. i seen three or four Bucks games here per, in person... You basically, forget about their offense, you can't get a shot off against this team when that team really wants to play defense. I remember I saw the Sixers play them early on in the season. I think the Sixers scored 85, 90 points, and they were lucky to score that many. You just could not get a shot off. So I'm impressed by the Bucs. I think the Bucs are the heavy favorite in the East, actually.
0: So let's uh, let's let's give ourselves some time to talk about these playoff games. We've only got so much more football to talk about, so let's not cut it off too quick. Oh my- Moneyball matchups. So, Eric, we usually go around the horn and each pick one game that we're paying attention to or think is interesting. But in this case, let's just walk through all four of them.
1: All right. So, let's start with Vikings at 49ers. So, obviously, uh, in many ways, Kirk Cousins got the monkey off his back. He had, like, you know, never beaten a team that actually had a 12 plus record. Um, He was, you know, I don't know, 2-25 or 30 in kind of big games against big teams. Obviously, they beat the Saints in New Orleans, which, you know, by the way, How badly, if you were a Saints fan, they've lost the last three seasons on essentially the last play of the game. Remember, three years ago, there was the miracle, the Vikings catch right at the end of the game where the guy broke it and down the sideline. Last year, of course, they didn't get the pass interference call. This year, literally, Kyle Rudolph caught the ball in overtime on, you know, another play. So, I mean, in some sense, the Saints have had, you know, heartbreaking losses. Let's talk about Vikings versus 49ers. The line is 49ers minus 7. Adi, do you have any reason to believe that the 49ers aren't going to win that game and aren't going to win it big? I don't have any reason to believe
2: that, but I wish I had something to say about these two teams I mean S- San Francisco I mean if you th- believe in quarterbacks they haven't had a success I mean Garoppolo has been solidly mediocre which suggests to me that perhaps they're they're in some sense overrated no
0: they've got they've got a great coach and a great system and they've also got a great defense I mean they've got enough quarterback I think most people would say and but people get real other than the defensive line and that defense I think people get excited about shanahan and that offense It's just fun to watch.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I think that's a game with very low variance, which means um, the variance always is turnovers in NFL games. Um, I think if both teams play anywhere near their capabilities, I think the 49ers win the game. I think they're just a better team. Mm-hmm. I think there's everything the Vikings do well. The Vikings have a good defense. I think the 49ers have a better defense. But
2: it's the third, it's, it's the second tightest game among the four, and you're potentially saying it shouldn't be.
1: I don't think it should be.
0: I, I have I have said that. I've said, it's been purely intuition. My numbers say the opposite. My numbers. We we give. We think this is like a four point three point line instead of a seven point line. It should be closer to a four. So, you, so we have a little bit you think on a neutral? This feet. is Massey Peabody. This is not me, but this is Massey Peabody. No, I just want to understand the That's, swing.
1: If this game, just be clear. If this game were in Minnesota, you'd have Minnesota as the favorite.
0: So, yeah, we have them, we have them just uh, two points away from each other. And so on a neutral field, too, and so if it were in Minnesota, we'd have them a little bit of a favor, which is So what the model's telling me wow. is they're stronger than they have looked to me. I am unduly influenced by that late-season Packer game where they couldn't do anything. I guess we should give them more credit. They just went to New Orleans and did this thing.
1: Well, let's move on to the next game. Titans at Ravens. So we know the Ravens, I mean, I think Kate has talked about this, maybe they're the best team, the Massey Peabody system and other systems have had in the last like 15 years, maybe since oh, the Patriots in 07. That's right. Um, the Titans, you know, they did just beat the Super Bowl champs. They beat them in New England. And Derrick Henry looked like the next coming of a combination of Bo Jackson and Earl Campbell in that <laughs> game.
0: What a combination.
1: Well, didn't he? Yeah, that's what he looked like. And yeah. he's that size. So... Adi, what do you think?
0: I mean, how well, much?
2: I, I'm 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 certainly taking the Ravens, but I'm but I if if heads up. But if I had to take nine points, I'd go with the Titans.
0: Mm, I'm yeah. I'm I'm all in on the Ravens. We, our mod, nine points. I think our our model is telling us, and I believe it's like they're just seeing dominance on both sides of the ball in a way that we just haven't seen it. And we'll, I'll lay the points for the Ravens.
1: I, I will do the same. I like the Ravens in that game, and I like giving the points also. Let's talk about the next one quickly. So we've moving got, to Sunday. Moving to moving Sunday. Moving to Sunday now. Texans at Chiefs. Chiefs favored by nine and a half. I'll go to Cade first this time.
0: So, you know, I'm just I, I'm I'm so biased here. I want to see Mahomes do well. I love watching that team play. They've been they haven't been what they were last year. I want to see it happen. Deshaun Watson's so much fun though. I I like the Chiefs here, but if I had to go, if I had to bet, I'm gonna I'm, if I get that many points from the Texans, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the points.
2: Adi, I'm also taking the points. Same I'm, reason, by the way.
1: Yeah. I just feel that the Chiefs are due for a really good game. Good. They, I don't think they've played They're a due. really good we game. We love that They're in due. sports and I liked, statistical I'm analysis. Taking, That's take,
2: our magic words. There we go. <laughs> I'm taking the Chiefs, and I'm
1: giving the points in that one. All right, last game, you know, the Seahawks at Packers.
0: So we've been short the Packers for a while now, and we've been mocked for how low we've had them. We have them right now the 16th best team in the league, and it's really a little bit hard to put that out there publicly, but we have.
2: And they're the favorite.
0: We're not any huge Seattle fans, but we'll take Seattle even in Green Bay, given that they're getting four points. We think Green Bay should have like a one-point edge here. They're getting four, so we'll take the Seahawks. Seems like a toss-up to me.
2: Well, pick one. I'll pick the Packers. I go the other way. I like I like the home. I like. I don't know. It it's hard to pick much, the but Packers. I'm just. I'm still stymied by by Bradlow saying they're due because that's mean reversion, and he's a momentum guy. <laughs>
1: oh.
4: That is true. <laughs> that is true. Really I'm a
2: non-stationarity
1: guy. Non-stationarity guy. Uh, I'm going to take the Packers also. I am just not impressed by the Seahawks. I saw them play the Eagles. They the Eagles gave them everything is they could it, handle. It not,
0: I mean, does not Russell Wilson just get it done somehow? They win all these close games. I mean, at some point that actually is oh, true. Point do you say the, uh, cu- the quarterback actually makes a difference? No, wait, wh-
1: just quickly. Adi, why can't you? Why can't we do that? Why can't we look at close games and look at his record in close games and say he's better than fifty percent, which is true, much better than fifty percent. We can. But it's
0: a small sample. I was going to say is. we don't. We have watch. Uh, we need, to watch, him, we need well. to watch him for a very long time. <laughs> All right, guys, that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every Wednesday. Many thanks to the to the whole team here, Matty Dats. Zach Drapkin, Deion Simpkins, from the team over here, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Kate Massey, and to our missing colleague Shane Jensen. Many thanks to you listeners. Great football in front of us over the next week. We will look forward to talking to you about it one week from today. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.